This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. First of all, I want to really thank you for for coming in and and uh, sitting down with us uh, and talking about your book. I'm really excited. Um, so I wonder if it's okay if I just kick us off with a question. Yeah, sure. Um, at, yeah, that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's yeah, we like what we here for, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. All right. First question is, um, what made you want to write this book? This is your third book. What made you want to write it? So I was on a cable news show one day. Um, this is maybe like four, four or five years ago for me. What is this, 2019? 19, yeah. Yeah, this was like five years ago. For, I'm old. So this was five years ago for me. And um, when I was leaving the show, um, I was on, you know, on the car ride home, and the producer sent me a clip of the video. And the video said... Um, D. Watkins, Black Lives Matter activist. And I'm like, yo, whoa, I'm, I don't work for nobody. I'm not a part of any organization. And to just like assume that it's like, it's not right to me and it's not right to that organization. They have core values and things that they represent and believe in. And um, I'm just out here. Like, I don't know the rhetoric or anything. Like, so it's like, I don't, I don't, I didn't understand why, you know, just because. You're a black man and write an essay. It means that we got to fit you in this slot or that slot. So, um, and I didn't complain because I'm not really good at complaining. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, you know, I mean, I think Black Lives Matter. I don't say it. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, but I just I thought it was weird and I thought it wasn't really fair to that organization. And it's been happening to me over the years as I travel and as I go places. Um, people they they try to put me in boxes and. You know, I, I just don't really think it's cool. Why do you think that is that they do that? I think it's easy. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's easy. I think um, stereotypes and, and generalizations, they make people comfortable. They make people, you know, they give them like some ammo so they know how to act, you know, you know, towards you. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't really, I don't really think it's fair. So if you were to describe yourself, how would you describe yourself just out of curiosity? A horrible cook, <laughs> um, a good a good friend, um, funny sometimes, sometimes not so funny. <laughs> Just regular, like I'd be chilling, like um, and then like a like, but really like I pride myself in friendship and direct service, um, connecting people, sharing resources, trying to like make sure I lift as I climb. If I do something good or if I get an opportunity, then I'm kicking that door open and I'm I'm gonna hold it open so some other people can slip in there too. Cause I think we're all stronger as a unit. And just trying to come up in academia and working really hard, um, you know, trying to make my neighborhood and and my community a better place a lot of times. Um there's not a lot of people trying to propel you or like, you know, help you get to that next level at times. So um, I, I try to help create that culture. 
I think that's actually a great segue into a, my next question, which is a little bit of a follow-up question, which is around the role that service plays in the book. I feel like that's a big theme. And I know even in the brief conversations we've had before, it seems like you are very committed to being of service in your community. So can you talk to me a little bit about um, why you decided to put the focus there and, and how you think of service, particularly when it comes to uh, the Black communities that you're focused on, the inner city Black communities? So, um, my homeboy moved to LA, right? And ever since he moved to LA, he's like, hey, what's up, King? Like, what's up, King? So I was like, you know, he was on a visit. He was home on a visit one day, and I was like, yo, stop, stop calling me King. Like, I don't have a throne. I don't have like a crown. I don't have like infrastructure, a drawbridge. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have these things that a king has. And then he's like, all right, oh, you right, God. You right, God. And I'm like, I'm not a God. I'm I'm a worker, dog. I just work. So anything you say to me or anything, you know, that you, when you're talking about me, I'm always working. Um, and it's important. I think right now, and I'm, I'm a college professor too. And um, a lot of my students, when we have these conversations, we're all writers and they're all writing classes. And we're talking about things that they're in writing. But a lot of times when, when we have these conversations, there's so many people talking about what they tweeted, who they beat down on Twitter, what happened on Twitter, what happened on Instagram, what they post, and it's never really directly connected to action. And sometimes I get scared for them because it's like we it's like we living in a time where you don't have to have fun at the party, you just have to look like you have fun at the party. You don't have to go to Coachella, you just have to look like you went to Coachella. You don't have to really make a difference in somebody's life. You just got to take a real ill uh, snapshot at the at the protest with your black power fist up and your open toe sandals on. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I, I don't I, I don't want to be I don't want to be one of the people that that sits by and okay's you know and, and say that that's okay. So one of my homeboys is he's real cool. He's a white boy who does like graphic design. He's a dope graphic designer and. And I'm telling you, he's a white boy because he, he ran up on me and he was like, yo, he was like, yo, 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 I took down this racist on Twitter. I took him down. I beat him down on Twitter. You know, like my tweets matter. And I'm like, I bet they do. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I bet they do. So he was like, so he was like, um, yeah, I told him this and I told him that. So I was like, how you know you was even fussing with a real person? How you know I wasn't a bot? And he's like. No, nah, because, you know, I'm here and I'm fighting for the people and, you know, I get on social media and I don't just talk about, you know, what I'm doing. Like, you know, and at the time I follow him. So he was hashtagging everything I'm with Cap. So, like, he could be like, my egg sandwich look good this morning. I'm with Cap. Like, <laughs> Cap and they care about your eggs. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um, so then I told him, um, I told him, you know, I said, I said, thank you, but, you know, it's all good. And then he started talking about white privilege. And how he acknowledged his privilege, and that's moving these conversations forward. So I was like, yo, that's cool. But acknowledging your white privilege to me don't help me because white privilege is not transferable. It's not like you can say, yo, I'm going to give you 78 white privilege points. And you use these the next time you get pulled over by a cop. You know what I'm saying? Because like, if, if it's like that, then let me, let me hold some. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm trying to get approved for some stuff. So, um... <laughs> So um, so then we just got into a conversation that I was just talking about, if you really care about this stuff, you're a good graphic designer. I know kids who don't even know that's a career, 
a career path. They don't even know that they're making really, really nice flyers on their phones. They don't even know they can make money off of that. You can come to the school. I can plug you with them. And now we're establishing a culture of art and getting paid for your art and what, you know, what it looks like. And it's a little different than you running down on me, keep telling me about your privilege. And it's like, I don't even care. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I care about, I care about him and I care Mm -hmm. about the world and the universe and stuff like that. But I don't care about microaggression and intersection. Like I don't, I'm not against it, but this is not my conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My collar's blue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So I wonder, I mean, what I'm hearing from you in part is the sort of performative nature of what it feels like, particularly, in the, I guess, in the age of social media, this work has become, or I won't even call it work, but the performative nature of social justice in some spaces. Um, uh, yeah. And, it can be good, but right. it can be annoying, too. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody got that annoying, you know what I'm saying? Like, that annoying, it's the annoying group of people that come around and, like, you know, they just police everything. And again, things need to be policed. This, the system, not police, police, but policed because, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we know, like, people run wild with their racism. They run wild with their sexual assault. It's some real life predators walking around. But if you spend so much time in rhetoric and not enough time in directly attacking these people and these systems, they going, these same people going to be around for another hundred years. Like we, we so, the, the world is so woke. They've got the most racist president, like Jefferson Davis or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like we going backwards, you know? Yeah, and, and I feel like there was also a theme that like, it's not even just that people are doing this and they're not making a difference, but they could also be causing harm, whether it's by diverting resources or building a brand off of something they don't really know a lot about. Do you want to speak to that? Or just bothering me because I'm trying to do stuff. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Just leave me alone. We good. Like, you know, um, you know, um, I mean, I was telling my manager, I was like, yo, big, big 2019 goal. No more panels on, (laughs) no more panels on, um, you know, topics that just with people just argue about the same thing in different languages. Like, let's just alleviate that. Um, Cause I should be working. I could be working on stuff. I can be getting more books to schools. I can be mentoring more. I can be building more. I can be working on some of the things that we already have established in Baltimore. I can be putting that energy there rather than, um, you know, talking about some of the things that, you know, like they'll ask me to speak on protest strategies. I don't protest. I don't protest anything. Like if I don't like you, I don't buy your stuff no more. Or I'll tell you, like, yo, I don't, I'm not gonna march. And I'm not against people that do march. I'm not, I'm really not, but um it hasn't been effective for me. Um, you know, I haven't and I'm sure it's you disrupt and it works for a lot of people, but I think we need people to disrupt, but we need people to also be in these systems to make change. We need people to be teachers and to be you know, whatever, politicians, even law enforcement, like people who really care to join these systems the same way we need people outside of these systems. It's, it has to be, <laughs> you got to fight the battle on every front. You know, I hear in this conversation a little bit of a tension between uh, individual action and systemic action. And I- Sorry, this is a nice bottle. <laughs> Yo, you see this? this like, is, oh, wait, I didn't see the yo, top. Did you see this? Just for people who are listening to the podcast, it's got a <laughs> silver sorry. lid that is yeah, really man. nice. It's Put a nice bottle of water. Like, yeah. Um, now I feel like you can call me king. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was just saying that I feel like there's a little bit of a, of a tension um, that you, that, that, that's sort of inherent in this discussion, which is 
um, it seems like a lot of the emphasis on the book is on both the individual action, right? Like if you like if you're really about this work, you're about it. You're in schools helping the youth. You're doing whatever it is you can, but also the systemic nature of the problem, right? Like you talk about the criminal justice system. You talk about uh, the educational system. Kids, you know, freezing in 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 schools in Baltimore. Like systemic problems, right? And so I'm wondering, sort of, how do you reconcile that balance? How do we think about individual action versus systemic, deeply entrenched? systemic issues i hate to be that guy but we need receipts like we need receipts it's like if you're going to promote that life if you're about that life there has to be some type of goals and some way of documenting the work you put in and what has happened because these kids need examples Mm -hmm. they can't eat rhetoric Mm -hmm. they can't eat your following Mm -hmm. they can't eat your hashtag Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like like they need receive, they need to know like this amount of energy went to this and this is what we produce we 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 built this foundation and now we can sit this house on top of that foundation like they need to see something so that they can have something to push forward to because um you know we we're living in a time now where like where I'm from in Baltimore city these kids are being judged against some of the you know these kids are smart but if you think about it you know imagine trying to learn a subject that you hate, like geometry or trigonometry or like, you know, most children don't like Shakespeare. <laughs> just, it's just, it's true. Um, but imagine trying to learn that in a building that's two degrees. So it's like, you got to hear somebody talk about it. And every time it's time for you to comment, your mouth gets all chapped and dried up because it's cold. Or you're trying to take notes and to take notes, you got to take your hand out your pocket and rub them together and blow on them to write something down before you put them back in there. You know, and everybody's, you know, everybody at the uh, at the district is is okay with it because the district is warm. The heat always works in the AC. You know what I'm saying? But you you got to learn in that environment. And it hasn't just been like that for a year, but it's been like that when your big brother and your big sister went to school, when your mom and dad went to school, when your grandparents went to school, when your great-grandparents went to school. And then you had it before your great-grandparents, there was no school. So it's like, you know, a lot of politicians... You know, because we got to throw them in there. A lot of people who do community work, a lot of people who publicize um, the work that they do are aware of these systems. And they, But they're claiming victory, but it's really no win. I just gave, I just went and gave books to a school the other day. Somebody got shot in that and shit. One of the schools I always go to, Renaissance Academy, three students was murdered in the school year. So it's like, why would, you know, why would people tout any type of, um, you know, progress and we're doing this and we're doing that and we're, we're fighting for this and we're fighting for that. And people are still dying. There's nothing to celebrate. It's nothing to talk about. It's nothing that really, you know, when we had another conversation, you asked me, was I angry? Yeah, I'm extremely ang- I'm angry. Like, because we, we get policed in a way that other people don't get policed. Right. Like, these people are crazy. Like, they're out of their minds. Um not because they're drunk, that's a fact. Not because of overtime fraud, that's coming out of my pocket. Not because of misconduct settlements, that's coming out of taxpayer money too. But because they not only robbing drug dealers, they robbing everyday working people. The police in Baltimore City, if you look up the Gun Trace Task Force, they robbed a stripper for $2,500. They robbed a FedEx guy. Who robs a FedEx guy? Who robs a stripper? Like, that's crazy. Like, these, and these people are in jail now, and they're writing them off. I write about them in the book, but they're writing them off as a few bad apples. But we're talking about combined almost 100 years of service between these people. 
We're talking about millions of dollars. They, so the, the lead cop is a guy named Wayne Jenkins. Let me tell you about this clown. This is what he does. He liked to rob people so much, right? He loved to rob people. He just loved to steal. He was the leader. And he saw these two guys and he was like, yo, I don't really quite know what they do, but I know I just, in my, my gut, I think they made a, a drug transaction. So mind you, Baltimore City is a very black city. Um, it's 65% black and it's segregated. So you only see black people in black pockets and white people in white pockets and then a couple of mixed people like in the middle, you know, um, not biracial, but I'm saying all the races in the act like in the middle. So this guy's in an all black neighborhood. He's a big husky white dude with a buzz cut and he took his badge off and he took his vest off and he pulled his gun out. He ran towards he ran towards his car with his gun. So they're like, yo, this white man's crazy. So they pulled off because they saw this big husky dude running at him with a gun. And when they pulled off, they ran over like a 65-year-old man and killed him. Right? They killed him. They killed him. So, you know, um, so now these dudes sitting in jail for that. And they were saying, yo, we didn't mean to shoot him. We was being robbed. And, and when they came out in court and the guy who actually was trying to do the robbery, his name's Wayne Jenkins, he he broke down crying, saying, I'm so sad, you know, because the guys, the, the guy who died, his parents was in the um was um in the courtroom. Cause we was all like watching him getting his jail time. And you know how you get a chance to like tell your little story. You know, you get to be like, I was a pillar of the community, I gave away turkeys, you know, you just all that stuff. So so he's in there talking about, I'm so sad. sorry I killed your dad. I would be so hurt if somebody killed my dad. And I'm like, it's the best you can come up with? Like, that's crazy. Over Greece. So this is the system that we got to go through. But then you look at us like, you know, like we going through these systems where kids, you know, and I've been to like a lot of schools, you know, over the past four, five years, like over 300 visits to schools and jails. And a lot of high school, a lot of high school visits, a lot of visits to the same high schools, but a lot of visits. And I've been in schools that have like Wi-Fi and digital chalk boards, and but they don't even have chalk. You know what I'm saying? Because I think it like caused some type of sickness. But they have like, you know, like all types, any and everything you need to learn. And then I've been, I mean, then I went to a school. I went to a school this year that had a hole in the floor where a toilet should be. So if you come into the boys' bathroom, you got to piss in a hole. And this is 2019. So, like, you know, I'm sorry for rambling, but it's just these systems are just, it's rigged. Like, and we don't do enough at acknowledging that. And we definitely not doing enough at fixing it collectively as a whole. Yeah, I think that's where sort of my question was driving to. I mean, it's something that I struggle with as well. I mean, I work on labor and workplace issues, and sometimes it feels like you can help one or two people or you can help a whole class of people, but there's still the structure there, right? And so I guess that's what that's the question I I, I think I, I'm returning to is like the question of collective collective action, the question of undoing these systems that you describe. Like police have been horrible for not just like since Black Lives Matter for a, a, a hundred years. Like they've been policing Black people. That's been the role of uh, the police since the Jim Crow era and before. So when we think about what does it look like. To dismantle that as individuals, and I know you might. It's like I'm not asking Go you to undo <laughs> systemic racism. Yo, D, how do we undo systemic racism? But <laughs> I am curious into how 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 do you think about tackling these problems? Because part of me is like, yeah, it's easy to post on uh, Facebook and Instagram. That's why people keep doing it. But these systems have been in place for years, for decades. I think as individuals, we have to challenge ourselves more. You know, everyone. Everyone's like, oh my God, Mike Brown died. Oh my God, Freddie Gray died. I can't believe they did Walter Scott like that. Oh my God, look how they choke Eric Gardner out. You know, so as soon as you die, 
you lit. Everybody love you. You get hashtags. They name a street after you. People marching your honor. You got Barack Obama saying he, he uh, when I was his age, you would look like me. You know what I'm saying? Like you got all these people turning up. But when you alive, nobody care. Like nobody care. Like nobody care. When Freddie Gray was alive, half of the people that marched for him would have crossed the street. And he's not even a big guy. He only was like 100, 140 pounds. He was slim. But and then, and then there's the other side after he dies where the media is like, oh, he's been arrested, whatever, whatever times. But that's the failed war on drugs. Talk about them convictions. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Talk about all of the different things, the hurdles that that young man had to go through every time he woke up and stepped outside. Multiple people ripping him off. Multiple people not giving him what he need. And a lot of people who, 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 um, who feel a certain way when these things happen, mainly when they're caught on tape. You have the opportunity to to be something to somebody. You don't have to start a hospital to make a difference. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to be like, yo, I'm making a difference out here. I just started two hospitals. I put one in Fillmore. I'm gonna throw the other one in Oakland. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't gotta you don't gotta do that, but you can be something to somebody. You know, you can change somebody's life by just committing to give them a ride to work. Like, you know what I mean? Like help them tie a tie. Like, I mean, you know, I had like so many unofficial mentors in my life where I was just able to watch their moves and be like, oh, okay. And, but just because they was around, they was like, in my proximity, I got a chance to feed off of that. And that helped me in my journey. But you don't, you know, I think sometimes, especially with like the pressures of social media, we put the, you know, we, we get out and we, we really put real pressure on people. Like, yo, you got to be this and you got to do this and you got to do that. And it's not really that deep. Direct service. Um, the simple stuff, like the simple stuff, just being a person somebody can call or reach out to when they have a problem, helping some, figuring out what skill, what you love and sharing that skill with somebody else and then teaching them to do the same, especially if they benefit. It's a little bit of time, a whole lot of love, it's easy money. I think that's great. And I, I want to, I think that, that that's also helpful to for me because that was something that that was definitely a, something I was curious about upon I'll send, reading. I you a bill. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't know what your billable hour rate is. Did I sign a contract? I don't know. Um, but I, so I'm curious. I want to switch gears a little bit because I think um, a, a, a related to your sort of critique around the lack of action and the performative nature of allyship and social justice uh, work is also a critique of who is chosen to speak on behalf of um, Black Americans, particularly those that live in poverty. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about this, to, particularly to give those who haven't read the book a little bit, bit of background on that critique. And then if we can talk a little bit about how you see the intersection of race and class. So, um, so I, was watching, I was watching the news, right? And... Um, Charlottesville was happening. If you're not familiar with Charlottesville, it's like these white supremacists, they put on like khakis and polo shirts and they set tiki torches on fire and they want to march to stop a Confederate statue from being torn down. And I saw some some black dudes, some commentators on two different networks crying. And they weren't crying. They weren't crying because the young lady was killed. That was sad. That was horrible. That was very cowardly and it was unfortunate. They both had similar language. They were crying because they were crying because 
They said they can't believe you can have a racist rally in America. And I'm like, yo, where y'all live at? Like, what you talking about? Like, this is the goofiest thing in the world. So, you know, and mind you, I'm in a, I'm in a different type of city. So I wasn't walking down the street and people weren't walking up to me like, you need a hug or nothing like that. But I just was like, I just thought that was like one of the most goofiest things in the world. So, um, you know, I think, um, I think people deserve... You know, people deserve to speak for themselves. And obviously, everybody doesn't make it in media. Obviously, everybody doesn't really get a chance to have platform and things like that. But I do think that leaders or pseudo leaders or so-called leaders do have a responsibility of, like, not really taking that title. Like, if, if I go on a TV show, a radio show, and somebody's like, how does the black people feel about this issue? You're the Negro expert. You know what I mean? Or how's the black women feel about, you know, high fructose corn syrup? I don't know. Won't you go ask some black women? Don't ask me. You know what I mean? And I think people, they get gassed on fame and they get gassed on the checks that come with being experts and all that, that they run towards that. And it's it's not really fair. Um, I got I have a whole, I have friends, real friends. Um, Alicia is, is one of my friends. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I love the work that they do. I know she's been doing work way before the Black Lives Matter even came out. But with the people I service in the neighborhoods I come from, they never heard of it. And that's mm. not a bad thing. They never heard of it. My homeboy told me, he, you know, he was like, nah, you know, he like, what that, what, what's that? Nah, for real? What? Are they on the internet? Where they be at? What internet? Mm -hmm. Same one you on. For real? He only come across his radar. And it's not that he's some disconnect, out of touch type of guy. It's that it's a big world out there. It's a big country. It's a lot of perspective. It's a lot of perspective. And... Everybody deserves to be considered everything, you know, everything holds some, some type of weight. I'm wondering, as a follow-up to that, because in some ways it's a, it is kind of like class-related, but I also think it's related to respectability. <laughs> I, and I, and I, and I, so I have a question because I think, you know, we can think back to the nonviolent protest movement of the um, 60s, the traditional Martin Luther King sort of thing, and the people who led that movement we're middle-class black people, right? We're working, respectable, working-class black people. King went all up in Chicago, though. You know yeah, I mean, he, he was, was there. there. He was in the trenches. He was in the he trenches. He was Alabama getting bombed. He was in there. Like, he was connecting with the people. He was you know also the son of a respected preacher. He also had a doctor in front of his name. You know, he went to school with a woman who was also college-educated in the 50s. And so, I hear you. He was in the trenches. But that one can make the same argument, and the same argument was made about him, about how he was a privileged African-American, and that's what allowed him to speak for the rest of us. So I'm, I'm wondering, the question of respectability, going back to that, how do you think respectability politics, not to use that, but like a lot of buzzwords, but I think it is a little bit about respectability. How do you think that also affects who gets the space to talk on behalf of Black people? You know... One thing about people who criticize King, Dr. King had receipts. Yeah, they had was documented. Like you couldn't fade him. He had receipts. He was out. He was out there. Like he was really out there. So, like one of my biggest critiques on um, some of the earliest stuff Malcolm X would say is like, it's you can say a lot of things when you in Harlem. <laughs> you know, you can mm -hmm. move a certain mm -hmm. way in Harlem. Mm -hmm. You can't move like that in Alabama. Right, you, right, you, right, it's, right. It's a whole different wave. It's a different vibe. It's different. Right. And I think that he. His rhetoric reflected that more towards the end of his life when he became more, when they both started moving more towards each other, right? Right, right. Um, but what I would say is like, um, so I'm on book tour 
And, you know, when I was home, this real fancy restaurant had a dinner. They had a party for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, and then, like, I got family all over, up and down the hill, Latrobe Projects, Douglas Housing Project, like all over East Baltimore. I got family everywhere. And when they have something, whether it's a Christmas dinner, whether it's somebody going to their prom, whatever it is, I'm pulling up. Um, I've taught at Johns Hopkins University. I'm at University of Baltimore now. I'm in those spaces with those same things behind my name. So it's like, it's a real thing. And I think that anybody who says a black person has to be this or has to be that or has to be that don't really understand the beauty and the complexities that's inside of this race. Because what, you know, because what, in my, in what I've seen is, you know, th yeah, there's some black kids that's, you know, a little trouble in and out of jail, gangs and all that. But then there's black kids that's in the like manga. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's black kids that's in the like science. Did I say that right? Manga? It's like the. I guess so. You know what I'm talking I, yeah, about? Yeah, like Dragon Ball Z and yeah, all that. Yeah. And then, but it's like, it's everything. It's everything that every race has right. is inside of this race. So there's no one stereotypical type person. But a lot of times the same personality with the same rhetoric is on the same channel saying the same things. And that's where we tend to get it wrong at. We get it wrong at because it's. It's complex, and I don't think those com those complexities are exercised. And the best form of critique, in my opinion, is creation. So you know, as as I work at creating my own, um, you know, I'm 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 going to continue to do that. But I'm also going to call BS when I see something that's BS. Like I saw like a rich black guy say, you know, he was like he was like. Black people, we don't need reparations. We're not ready for that. We need free education. No, I'm <laughs> always ready for a check. I'm so saying, you talking about like you don't need it because you got money already. Yeah, you got money already. Of course, you going you can say that, but who's not? That's so disrespectful to so many working people. Why are you sitting here talking about you? We're not ready for a check. It's just too much, man. We're not ready for that. No, we're not ready. We're not ready for that. Free education. I went to college four times. I got four pieces of paper. I don't need another one. I need a check. Like, check my money out. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think actually that that like that brings me to my next question because in the book I feel like there's some emphasis on education opportunity and 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 providing um, a way for people to get out of bad situations through that. But I think what we also know, at least what I see, is like you said yourself, you got four papers and. That don't papers don't pay the bills, right? I work with no, employees. No, the papers are bills. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah, like they have real bills that I'm still paying. Um, but you know, like we, you, 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 and I work with people who go get those papers and still can't get jobs, right? So, how do we think about that? How do we think about the precarity of black achievement and 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 how that how that sets us up to succeed in the system or how it doesn't? It's a it's a it's a real thing and it's a fight. Like you know, like one of my one of my really really good friends, he just 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 got his first job with his degree and he graduated college almost ten years ago because he had two felonies. Nobody would touch him and he had to fight. And you know, he had a family and his family, like most families, get hungry. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He did everything he was supposed to do. You come up in the street. You get in a rough situation, you make some bad decision, that happens. Everybody makes bad decisions. You know what I'm saying? You know, but he, you get these little charges and they, you know, they they, they railroad you, you know, people who not, he, he not a system type of dude. So I'm pretty sure he probably could have got a better deal than what he got, but it is what it is. He got what he got. But he, it took him that long to get his, how do you sustain for a decade? How do you sustain for a decade? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's crazy out here. 
And what makes it even more difficult is it's one of the most talented people I know, not because it's my friend, it's because everybody in the program he was in was coming to him <laughs> for all their help. When it's time to build an app, they holler at him. When it's time to figure out some type of hack type situation that they can't break through, they pulling up on him. And these people that like live in affluent neighborhoods pulling up to a neighborhood where, you know, they wouldn't come around there unless they was trying to like buy some drugs or something. No, they come around and get help with their homework. Mm-hmm. That's a documentary in a film. You know what I yeah. mean? But, you know, he finally got a gig and he finally got a job and he can go on with his life. But, you know, the system is flawed and we we live in, in, in two different Americas. And as a black person, you have to be almost like octo-conscious. Like, you know, you got to... You gotta be able to move through so many different types of spaces, and it's like you know, it can get. I mean, it can it can get weird, it can get frustrating. But one of my roles, what my job is, is a person who acknowledges. Use use. I use platform to acknowledge these things. I use platform to call BS on the things that are BS, and I use it to try to uplift the voice of other people, other writers, other creative people. That's that's. My job. Mm-hmm. Um, other people have different jobs, and when it's time for me to collaborate and partner with them, I, I try my best to do that. I, I I have a I have a question that's a little bit on a different track, but it's something I'm think of, think thinking of, given that the emphasis we're talking about service and it just all of the work that I think is necessary to make the movements that we need to make. One of the people you mentioned in your book is Erica Garner as an example of uh, someone who was of service and who walked the walk. And we know that sadly she died of a heart attack at a very young age. And you are like everywhere. Even when we were on the phone, you like running from point A, what point B, you like, yo, can I call you back? I just got out of class. I'm going here. And I wonder, um, as somebody who is active, who's, you know, going to the schools and, and who sees someone also like Erica Garner, how do we think about the intersection between being in the community and doing work and being a martyr? Because this work is huge, right? So that's, that's a great question. And I don't really like how I answer this question, but I, I can't lie to you. You know, we just met. <laughs> I didn't know you for like another two weeks before I lied to you. But um, <laughs> no, but you could die. Yeah, you could die. You can get killed. Like my car window got banged out. Somebody shot. I didn't shoot my car window on purpose, but my car window was popped in front of a bar. They got shot up like two New Years ago. Like you can die. That's it. Like you can die when you're doing a lot of work and you're doing a lot of stuff. You're not always eating the best food. You're not always taking care of yourself. When you're in a lot of these different neighborhoods. You know, people get shot. I go to schools all the time. People get shot in, in the schools that I go to. Um, it's just, it's a reality. It doesn't make you exempt from doing the work. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to sit up in a tower and from a drone perspective and just tweet about it. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Later, look, like this. That's my move. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, retweet, you can, retweet. You can, you can die. You can mm-hmm. die. Um, but you can die doing anything is how I look at it. You can die doing anything, but... Um, she was a she was she was brave. She wasn't clout chasing. She wasn't trying to be in nobody's picture. She wasn't like she wasn't she wasn't for sale. She saw how wrong this system is at a high level. And then she had to get picked apart by other people trying to use her voice, trying to use her energy, trying to use her likeness. She got picked apart. Like even they used her on a program that that where I met her at, um the second time they used so 
she, you know, she had to deal with the death of her dad who died for nothing. People always say he was selling loose cigarettes. He sold loose cigarettes, but he wasn't selling loose cigarettes that day. That day he was a victim of poor policing. He was a victim of quotas. So I'm going to tell you how poor policing works. It works just like this. So you got two types of cops, right? So you got one cop who's like works on like homicides and, you know, like, you know, like, like a rape or something. So they really got to investigate. They got to get DNA evidence. They got to pick stuff apart. They're moving around. And if they make a case, it might take them like three or four months. They get no overtime. They get no special privileges. They don't get anything, but they do something right. They might get a rapist or a murderer off the street. That's cop A. Then you got cop B. Cop B is a stats guy, the quota guy. He's the guy who they send out there to make certain arrest him off. At one point in Baltimore, it was that you had to get one a day. So I interviewed this cop the other day, and he was saying that um, it don't matter what you was doing. It don't matter what you was doing. He had to get one a day. So, you know, he they, his his stats would say, I got I had like 42 arrests in the month of August, right? But it don't say that like 20 of them was pissers. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like he had to get arrested. So what happened was um under Martin O'Malley, under Martin O'Malley, who he used to be um, he used to be the, the mayor of Baltimore, and then he was the governor of Maryland, and then he ran for president and had like an event at Iowa where like only one person came and that person was like undecided. <laughs> he came for the free, he came for the free dip. He came for the free dip. So, you know, but under Martin O'Malley, um, he got sued by the ACLU and the NAACP for 700,000 illegal arrests. 700,000 illegal arrests. And what that do is you putting people in the system at a high rate and it weighs on them. It, it stops them from being able to do things. It messes their lives up. And, it's, and it, you look tough on crime and you look like you're locking up a lot of people, but you really ruining lives. And the crazy thing about it is the, it's incentivized. So the cops benefit because when they lock you up, they got to process you. That's overtime. When they lock you up, they got to go to court. They get a court fee. So they doubling their salaries with overtime and court fees and the whole time that you ruin the whole communities and they only doing it in black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, it's, it's, it's not fair. It's, it's, it's rigged. It's and if rigged. we take it back to Erica Garner and Eric Garner. Oh, as, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. So he, so he, he sold loose cigarettes. That's what I was going at. He sold loose cigarettes, but he wasn't selling loose cigarettes that day. That day he was leaning on a wall because he was tired. He was tired because he broke up a fight. Two people was fighting and he broke up a fight. After he broke up the fight, he was tired. Um, and I, you know, it, it's in a book that um, this dude who, um, he was, he's at the Rolling Stone named Matt Tahibi. He um, wrote a book about Erica and their family. And he, you know, he, he tells the story in, in a beautiful way. But Eric was tired because he broke up a fight. And this cop was trying to make his quota. So they're like, oh, go pick Big Eric up. So he goes over there and he's telling them that he's tired. He's already like, you shortness of breath, you put a stick around his neck and, and choke and squeeze the life out of him. And she had to see that. And then she had to see it on video over and over and over again. On That's why I don't be sharing videos like that. Because it's like, people. this man got kids and grandkids and family members out there and they see it. Oh, you know, imagine seeing your family member who you love, who made the jokes at Christmas, who came through in the clutch when you needed him or her, who you really, really, really bang with. Die on your social media every day. That's crazy. That's that's like sick. That's like we live in a sick world. You know what I'm saying? So she had to go through that. So yeah, she died. Like yeah, like what you think the outcome was going to be? You know what I'm saying? Like what you think going to happen? You know? 
But we get to look at it for, through, a, through the lens of like, we get to look at it through the lens of like, this is what's happening in the world. And we're not able to put that human touch on it. Because if it was my father, like, I would get off the internet. I wouldn't even be on there like that. I don't want to see that. And if somebody say something crazy like a talk show host or like a, like a Bill O'Reilly or something, I'm going to knock his head off. I'm not even going to think twice. I'm going to catch him coming right out of this building in New York. I'm out there waiting. Because that's how they play with people. Because they're not people. Because you don't see people. You don't see humans. You just see the internet. And you just see things. And we just got to figure out a way to get back in touch because it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that that's um, so powerful and so right on. And I wonder, you know, part of this takes me back to where we started the conversation, which is the performative nature of the social justice that you critique and the harm that it causes, right? Um I saw activists on the internet bragging about doing um, 10 hours in jail. Then you bragging about doing 10 hours? Like, come on. Like, at what point is this like 10 hours? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 10 hours? That's mm-hmm. the break. Like, you talk, 10 hours? Oh, I can still smell the wetness of the cell. <laughs> I can still hear the guards screaming at me. They told me to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, dog. Like... My man, Eddie Conway, he's a Black Panther. He said for 40 years for something he didn't do. You know what he told me? He said, shorty, I still got a sense of humor. <laughs> he said for 40 years. 40 years for something he didn't do. 40 years. People out here talking about 10 hours. Get out of here, man. It's crazy. So I wonder, I mean, my question is, <laughs> is like you see people like kind of trying to claim something through that, right? Um but I, I wonder, part of what got me about Erica and what got me about what you just said was just sort of black pain and the commodification of black pain and black struggle. Now see, for, for those of you listening to the pod, D just moved his fingers together like with money. Um, yeah, commodification of it, right? And I'm wondering, what do you think about that piece? Like, how do you relate that back to the book? And how do you, yeah, how are you just thinking about it right now? Um, so what I think is um, it's crazy because it's like I think that the only people you know I'm speaking for me I'm not saying how I think other people should think this is my opinion at our own if you out there promoting and slinging black pain you should be contributing to healing that pain you shouldn't just be taking your little dollar and running back to your little cul-de-sac with your oat milk and your you know what I'm saying 80 inch uh, 4K TV on the wall. You should be trying to. You should be committed to healing it because what we have right now is it's like a bank, right? Black pain is like a bank that you know that certain people they take money from it all the time, but they don't never deposit nothing. Mm-hmm. They don't deposit nothing. Like I mean, certain like politicians run for office. They pull up in the hood and they pick up little black baby and hold them up and take a, you know, and they do all that and they put that on their website and it's like, for the people. You know what I'm saying? As soon as they get in the office, they put a middle finger to all of us. You know, um, the mayor in Baltimore just did it. She put a big middle finger up a lot of times. She put, she got like, we got, how many middle fingers you got? You got two? I have two. She got like 12. You know what I'm saying? She got like two. And I'm saying this because straight up, I mean, straight up, she said that if she took a survey from the unions, right? And in that survey, it basically said it talked about had a question about a $15 minimum wage. And she answered the question, yes, right? And and $15 was going a long way in Baltimore. It's not San Francisco. She was going a long way. But $15 in Baltimore, you can probably, you know what I'm saying? You should get some rims. Anyway, um, <laughs> not the people, we don't really wear out rims. But 
She said that if there was a $15 minimum wage, she would gladly sign it. So then they interviewed her about it. And she said, yo, I understand poverty. I understand what's going on out there in the city. I would definitely do what I got to do to try to like combat that. Like I would definitely, I would sign that in a second. Soon as she got elected, it came across her desk and she like, no, I'm not signing it. So the lady from the news was like, but you said you would sign it. She was like, hey, like I swear on the Bible. Cold. Don't take my word. Google it. She said, it ain't like I sweat on a Bible. This is the same woman. So I don't know, people who don't know me, like one of my big things is I write content that with the, with the hope that I get kids excited about acknowledging their stories, loving their stories, loving the people where they come from, loving their bad experiences, identifying their good experiences, but falling in love with reading, becoming critical thinkers and, and, and all that. And that's, that's my thing. And I, I've helped donate thousands and thousands of books to um, the Baltimore City Public Schools and in the D.C. area. And then I visit all these schools and do workshops and all that. So books is my, that's my thing. Like, the, I know the more words you know in life, the further you go. And I also know that um, studies show that if, if a kid grows up with books in their home, they tend to go further than a kid who don't, even if nobody reads them. So I know it's really, really important. Like, I, I gave away a thousand copies of this book that... that um, over here on the table over the last, uh, well, we gave away like 500 so far, but I got another 500 to give away when I get back home. And then um, before my other book came out, like we, we do these big book drives and these big book giveaways. And, and that's my thing. So for her, her whole scam was this. She was a senator and she sat on the board of University of Maryland, University of Maryland Medical Center. So her, this was her play. If you wanted her to vote a certain way, you just got to write her a check. And you write the check to her LLC, which was called Healthy Holly. Healthy Holly was a, unsil- a book that, that she said that she was, do- books that she was donating to Baltimore City public school students about eating healthy, even though they were unsolicited, right? So she racked up $800,000 um, in donations and people trying to, you know, to that LLC. But she never got the books printed. She printed maybe like, like a thousand books or something like that. And they, didn't, and they never made them to the students. So when they started raiding her spots, they found the book. The book's about healthy eating, but she spelled vegetable wrong. It's about healthy eating, but she spelled vegetable wrong. And then there's a guy in a book named Herbie, and she spells Herbie like three different ways. So it's like, these are big middle fingers. These are like, so what? Like, I don't care. And it's like, and we go through this, and we're supposed to be okay with it. And when they, when they try now, so now the feds, the feds just raided her and IRS and all that, and they asked her, is she going to resign? And she's like, nah, because I got pneumonia. I got to figure it out. You know what I mean? So it's like, and then and then I got to go, and then I'm on the road, and I'm watching John Oliver, and I got to see John Oliver making fun of my city. You know what I'm saying? And it, But it was funny, though. John Oliver, <laughs> was, he got it, though. Like, he got it. He, he got it. He got it good. But, um... But yeah, so that's near and dear to me because like my whole thing is books. Like that's my thing. That's what I do. That's what I've been doing since I put my since I put my first book out. Um, even like um, working with um, organizations like Collective Impact and Mo Magic with Nico and in Mohan in the Bay Area. Like they gave away hundreds. I don't even know if it reached a thousand, but they gave away hundreds of copies of my books. And then they bring me out here to teach workshops, and I'm building with kids, and I'm learning about the Bay Area and what is what is it like being black in San Francisco. And, um, you know, and, and, and some of the struggles and, and what they have to look forward to. And they telling their stories and their reading and their thinking and they're figuring out how to navigate and move. And it's beautiful. It's what changed my life and it's having an impact on others. So when I see somebody like taking something so pure and so necessary and just scamming, it just, you know, it makes it makes my stomach it makes my stomach hurt and like 
my head and, you know, like, like headaches and stomach aches and all that. I think, though, that's a good, because I, I feel like you, you're, you're coming to a place where I do want to end the conversation. But I, we talked a lot about, we've engaged a lot in critique, but I, I, I'm interested in what you are excited about and what gives you hope. You know, you talk about these students and these young people learning how to tell their stories and seeing that in action. So I'm wondering, can you share some of the things through your work that give you hope? When I was a kid, um, pretty much nobody read the books in high school, most of the kids who went to high school with me don't even know what the books were, and everybody was proud of it. I go to high schools now, and um, kids recite passages to me from my book that I forgot about. That's all I ask for. So if I die now, I'm good. Like, that's way more than what I ever thought I was going to be. Mm-hmm. That's it, you know? That's it. And if they have that now at a young age, like, I ain't start reading like that till I was, like, in my mid-20s. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was a shop kid. Um, I could argue with the best of them, um, but there was nothing behind it. You know what I'm saying? So now that I know that people are like 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 years old and they they can recite these passages and they can, they're using my book as a stepping stone and then they jumping on and reading Toni Morrison and Frederick Douglass and James Baldwin and all that, like... That's more than I never thought I would see that in my life. And somebody like from the bottom, like me, had a chance and contributing to that. That's all I can ask for. Every Anything else after that is like bonus. So um, I I have one more, well, two more questions. I lied. I keep saying the last I got, question. I got two more answers. All right. Good, cool, cool. Uh, so earlier, you already answered this question. I asked you about the role that anger plays in your work. And I want to ask you a different question now. I want to ask you about the role that love plays in your work. Um, I just got engaged in October. Congratulations. You know, uh, <laughs> I go, so, I, so I'm so pressed. Let me tell you how pressed I am. I'm so pressed. I work in New York, right? Like so one time, sometimes two times a week. I come, every time I come home, like I get up, get on a train. If I don't care what I did the previous night. I could... I could have wrote an essay. I could have went out with my friends and tried to like drink and party and all that. It don't matter. Like I'm home for dinner. Mm. I get to New York six, eight o'clock in the morning, beat everybody to the office, have all of my write-ups done, have all of my interviews done. It don't matter. Like it don't matter who I'm interviewing. It could be like, I interview like, like Stacey Abrams and John Totoro and Elhan Amara and Antonio Medeiros and all these amazing people doing these amazing things. I'm ready for them. I'm pumped up. I got all the energy in the world. I'm back on a train. I'm home for dinner. Like I, you know, because I used to, I used to stay in New York and like try like hang around and you know be all cool and all that. But <laughs> but now I'm, I'm the happiest thing for me is is getting off that train and, and and knowing that she that she pulling up. So I think it's it's important because um you can't you can't um you know, you, you, you have to have a certain amount of love in your life, I, I think, um, in, in your heart and in your circle, to your friends and, and you know, whoever you're in a relationship with to be able to project the best. You know, when I was in a dark place, maybe some of the work was even more dark. Now I'm in a bright place. I'm able to, like, be more optimistic and have a more optimistic tone and, 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 and project that, mm-hmm. you know? That's awesome. Congratulations Thank again. You. Um, and my final question. Uh, so, you know, we're we're here in conversation, but this is also a podcast and this is, you know, this is an educational institution. And 
there's a diversity in terms of class, race, whatever. And I'm wondering if you could give some advice for the listeners, a call to action for people who may uh, be listening today about what you would like to see them do, what would that call to action be? Be the person that be the person that you didn't have coming up or be the person that the person who you are judging needs. It's two different things. If you had everything coming up before you part your lips to talk trash about somebody else, be that person that can help them get out that situation or just shut up. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or if you're a person that has had some success, you know, and I tell a story about one of my friends in a book when he's talking about, you know, I'm in college, I'm in college, um, undergrad, I'm an old undergraduate student, so I'm like a dinosaur, but I'm, in, I'm back in, I was back in, I was back in college at the time, and my homeboy's talking about how he hate East Baltimore, he hate East Baltimore, he, he was in truck driving school, and he was saying how he was going to, once he get out of truck driving school, he ain't never coming back, he ain't never coming back, like, I, ain't, I don't want to see these people, because everybody's dead, except for us, we lost whole groups of friends, like, he, he, from, he from East Baltimore, like my neighbor, we grew up together, he know we mass death, like, funerals all the time, and he had a right to feel that pain, but I was telling him that, you know, he, he tried, let's try, try to be the person that we didn't have coming up, and then maybe we can make it better, and we can run our neighborhood instead of sticking out like a sore thumb in somebody else's, and he got killed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The guy who was never coming back didn't get a chance to live any of those dreams out, and he's gone, and, you know, that's hurtful to me. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, what if one of us was there to talk to that kid before he pulled that trigger and he would, he would still be here? So, um, you know, that's, that's my thing. So the advice? Yeah. So my advice is be the person that you didn't have coming up. And if you had everything coming up, then try to look out for somebody before you talk trash about them. Try to be there for them before you before you just talk about how horrible, you know, that they're a horrible person and all that. Like, cause I think that that's more effective than being judgmental and just saying, you know, oh, she's dirty and he steals and, you know, stop them from being dirty and stealing, like help them out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> cause it's not, it ain't, it ain't that difficult. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.